0: Hello and welcome to episode 130 of the CogniCast, a podcast by Cognitech Inc. about software and the people who create it. This week, host Timothy Baldridge talks with Zach Oakes. But before we get started, we do have a few announcements. Sponsorships are still available for ClosureCon, so head on over to 2017.closure-conj.org for more information. And if you happen to be in the Baltimore area in mid-August, you should definitely stop in at the Baltimore Closure Meetup, which is happening on August 15th at 6.30 p.m. The meeting will be held in Yet Analytics new offices. More information at meetup.com slash Baltimore dash closure. Have you ever noticed that closure-related URLs have a lot of dashes in them? I wonder why that is. Finally, there's going to be a closure bridge in San Francisco on September 15th and 16th. In case you don't know, Closure Bridge is an organization dedicated to increasing diversity within the programming community by offering free, beginner-friendly closure programming workshops to people from underrepresented groups. So check out closurebridge.org slash events for all the details. If you have a closure-related event you'd like us to mention, please drop us a line at podcast at cognitech.com. So that's about it. So on to Timothy and Zach and episode 130 of the CognaCast.
1: everyone today is friday july 14th and this is the cognacast i'm timothy baldridge and today is my great pleasure to welcome zach oaks to the show thanks for being with us zach greetings thank you very much excellent so um we always like to start the conversation off with kind of an icebreaker uh if you will uh, of saying hey uh give us a, an experience you had of art something that uh, it's either a good experience or a bad experience um, and we're not even going to define art for you we're just going to say hey whatever you call art give us some experience that you've had there so so what do you have for us today
2: well uh, it's probably fitting for me to talk about games <laughs> because uh, my talk at the 2014 Conj was largely about uh, games as an art form and uh, I mean, I don't actually think all games qualify or even most, but, uh, and I don't even think that it's bad if it doesn't. I mean, I waste time playing Rocket League as much as the next guy, but, uh, you know, when it comes to art, uh, one of my favorite designers, I think I even mentioned it at the 2014 Conj, if I remember, uh, is Jason Rohrer. And, uh, he's basically like the guy I want to become when I grow up. (laughs) He's like, uh, he, he, uh, he makes games entirely by himself, usually like everything, the code, the art, everything. And, uh, he, um, he's made a number of really interesting ones. There were a couple of like really eight bit games he made. There's one called passage and another called gravitation. And they're very short. You know, they're not going to be the sort of thing you spend a long time on. But like in Passage in particular, he uses a lot of uh, spatial metaphor Mm -hmm. in the game to uh, to basically uh, hit on like relatively deep and abstract issues. And um, also the one great thing about games that other forms of art don't really have is, of course, the ability to interact with it which means everyone can get a slightly different experience. And like with passage in particular, it's funny because, you know, all that stuff I mentioned about spatial metaphor um, happens when you like move the character down and go through the whole level. But it turns out if you just hold down on the right arrow key, you can go through the entire thing without hitting any like obstacle at all. And apparently a lot of people did that on accident because they didn't realize you could go down and uh, Jason Rora was being interviewed about that and he was like, yeah, I, uh, I didn't actually intend for that, but I'm kind of happy that it is that way. Cause it, it's like, do you ever press down in life? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, uh, so it's a, uh, that's one thing that you can get that, that maybe other forms of art aren't able to provide, you know, they can teach you a little bit about yourself, whether it's good or bad. Exactly, and and I think back
1: to um, the talk that that you did was was back in uh, like you said twenty fourteen, and and I think that area has expanded a lot in, in the past three years. As I'm a somewhat of an avid gamer, and um, you know the the start of it was stuff like Papers Please, but then we we see other games since then that deal with depression or um, yeah. various aspects of of, of life. Um, and, and some some are just, you know, um, like you said, an, an art form, a different way of looking at the world, a very abstract uh, part of the world. I You know, one I think of is, is something like RimWorld, where it's not so much telling and doesn't have a point so much as just saying how much of life and stuff can we generate and kind of um, uh, yeah, um, have the computer tell a story on its own, you know, kind right. of inventing that sort of thing. And uh, and I think that stuff, that, that, that's really great. Um, and you're right though, you brought this out in your talk, that that games are kind of shifting in the indie space more away from, um, well if you can't compete on the graphics level, which you can't, uh, one guy can't, at least one person, one programmer, then um, you got to kind of compete on the story or, or a different level of it as well. Yeah, exactly. Excellent. All right. Excellent. So um, from looking at uh, some of your work and stuff in preparation for the talk today, I noticed you've, you've done a lot of work with um, say beginner programmers um, and, and games and kind of this indie game uh, world. So I thought we'll start probably on one of the um, more well-known of your projects, and that's Nightcode. So um, what, what is Nightcode, first of all, for those of our listeners who
2: are unfamiliar with it? It's, uh, it's an IDE um, focused specifically on Clojure. It's written in Clojure completely. It uh, originally was a swing app, actually, and uh, now it's JavaFX, so I did a pretty big rewrite. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's definitely focused on beginners, uh, and so it's not really competing with uh, Cider or Cursive or anything like that. And, uh, and really the, the goal is to, uh, improve the first run experience, you know, like it builds in a copy of line again and boot actually, it has both. So you don't even need to have them installed in your system. Um, you still do need the JDK or, or some Java runtime installed, but that's only, um, you know, to when it actually shells out and tries to, compile and run your code, but but the actual IDE itself, uh, has everything else built in.
1: Excellent. Excellent. And, and so what was that your main goal when starting with the, the IDE was to kind of, uh, lower the barrier of entry to, to closure?
2: Yeah, I, um, at the time, uh, the circumstance was that I was living in Pittsburgh and I was, uh, I was unemployed, mostly on purpose. And uh, to make side money, I went on Craigslist and I would advertise like free programming lessons. Um, I didn't even specify what language. And most of my students were like uh, college students who just needed me to help them with their Java homework. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also got a lot of other people, like parents who wanted me to teach their kids and stuff like that. And when, in, in cases where I had some freedom to just, teach what I wanted I was tempted to teach with Clojure but back then this was like 2013 yes the, yeah the tooling space was not like it is today um you know there wasn't a whole lot out there. I mean there was Emacs and there was Vim. um but I don't even know if Cursive was out yet
1: no no it wasn't yeah
2: yeah so uh it actually the best option that I came across and some of the, the other closure old timers out there will remember this little project called Kluge. Yes.
1: Yes.
2: (laughs) And, uh, it was, I loved it. I mean, it was, I love that it was just a jar file. Like you just download this jar file on any computer you want and then just like double click it. And all of a sudden this, uh, this swing window appears and, uh, it was written in closure. And uh, you know, obviously, use Java Swing, and it was just it, you know nothing complicated. It was a uh, project tree, and then a little text editor, and it had you know built-in closure syntax highlighting and a few other things. Um, I loved it. The, the only downside is that I still had to go to the terminal to actually run a project. There was no integration with Linegan. Mm-hmm. And so, my initial goal was just to take Kluge and then find a way to, to somehow build line again into it. And it actually was not as hard as it sounds. I mean, this is true of most closure projects. You can just use it as a library if you want. I mean, right. you can just run various uh, of its internal functions directly if you want. And uh, the hardest part for me was just figuring out how to pipe the output into like a swing pane. So so you could uh, actually see the build output. Um, but I got that done and you know, eventually started coming up with other things to change, and so I, I gave it a new name. But uh, you know, that's how Nightcode started, it was just, I wanted Cludge with some other stuff added in, and the goal was like, for an absolute beginner, maybe it would be nice to avoid having to fire up the terminal or cnd.exe or whatever. And just focus on that one single window.
1: Well, that's great. Yeah, and it's 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 true. Back then was a was a different era. I like to, um, I, I remember somewhat fondly now back to a, a mailing post. Um, Back in I think it was 2010. Last time I looked it up, and and uh, I was ranting about how horrible it was trying to get started with OpenGL and closure. And, and David Nolan responded. It was quite nice, more more nice than I was. But uh, yeah, and it was stuff like Cluj and that sort of thing back then that uh, kind of um, got us by. But but even back then, you know, Windows support wasn't as good as it was uh, is today. Um, and from what I understand, Nightcode uh, runs now
2: on on multiple platforms, right? Yeah, I mean, see, this is one thing that changed a little bit. Um, Back when NightCode was just a swing app, I only had a JAR file. So, yeah, you could run it on anything, um, including Windows. Um, But when I rewrote it to use JavaFX, one of the advantages of it is, uh, I mean, you could just distribute it as a JAR file, but JavaFX also has this tool called Java Packager. Mm that will actually let you create uh native packaging for each platform so um now I also have an exe installer and you know a dmg file which mac users would expect and so on so um it's a little bit of a better experience I think
1: well that, that's great and yeah I mean it's 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 it's, it's the truth that you know, I, I look back at when I started learning C sharp or whatever, and, and it's really hard to beat. You know, go to Window go to Microsoft site, download, you know, whatever educational version. I forget what it's called now, a Visual Studio, and you're off running. No, nothing else, uh, really. So, um, yeah. yeah, these sort of all in one things are are really great for lowering the barrier of entry. And and I think, um, if I remember correctly, Closure Bridge uh, uses Nightcode for exactly that reason. It's it's, you know. A, it maybe isn't doesn't have all the bells and whistles a power user would want, but you know when you're trying to teach someone to code, it's more about getting off the ground running first of all.
2: <laughs> yeah, so. no, they they've been good. They found plenty of bugs for me. <laughs> excellent, excellent <laughs> is uh, always useful. Yeah. So, so you you mentioned though that the change from
1: Swing to JavaFX, and I mean, it's uh, what really was the biggest driver for for that change.
2: Uh, a few things. Um, number one, of course, you know, Swing is uh, is an older UI framework, and anyone who's used it knows that, you know, when you make something with Swing, it looks and feels like it's 20 years out of date. <laughs> right. Whereas uh, JavaFX only looks 10 years out of date, so it's an improvement. Right. Uh, <laughs> um, you know, I mean... Uh, One of the biggest things actually was um, on Swing, I was using actually the same text editor component that Kluge was using. It's this uh, big Java project called R syntax text area. And uh, it's great, it's nice, but it's not like meant for closure. I think they have very basic syntax highlighting and that's it. And I really wanted to add more to the editor in particular, things that would benefit beginners, um, rainbow parentheses would be great. For a beginner especially, it helps you visualize right. um, where everything is. And I wanted to create an Instarebel, all this stuff. And um, looking at that massive Java code base, I knew it would be pretty difficult. And uh, so you know, I just coasted for a couple of years and, and didn't do much with it. But actually around that time, I started working on a browser-based editor called Paren Soup, which I didn't even really uh, intend to use with NightCode at all. Um, it's a, just a little editor I wrote in ClojureScript that has all of those features I just mentioned. It's got rainbow parentheses. It's, it even like highlights the particular form you're in with your cursor mm, nice. uh, with the same color as the, the parens. And... Um, you know, for a beginner especially, just, just being able to visualize the structure of the code that way is really helpful. And uh, I could not use it in NightCode at the time because it was a Swing app, and Swing can't just load arbitrary web content, but uh, but JavaFX can because it has a WebView co- uh, component. And, you know, it's not the the fastest thing in the world, but it's a fairly modern copy of WebKit um on every platform and this is something people seem to overlook like i know it's pretty popular these days to use um electron right if you want to make thick client apps and nothing wrong with that at all but um the cool thing about java fx is you can still have that java runtime you can still use all those things that i was using in the old Nightcode, code like the, the file api I didn't have to change any of that, but I could just display this little web view and load up soup. And so, so the current Nightcode is like a hybrid app in that way. Like the uh, the editor component is a little web view, and the rest of it is just you know native or quote unquote native JavaFX controls. And and they can communicate together, so you can run you know something in the web view from the JVM side and vice versa. Which is a pretty awesome uh, power to have. Like you can just uh, offload all of the the really hardcore processing to the JVM side if you want, and then just send the result back. There's all kinds of crazy stuff you can do. So, so that was probably the main reason I switched to JavaFX was was just getting all those features into the editor. Well,
1: that's that's fantastic. And now I want to go look into that because I've done some work with JavaFX, and I I never even thought of of. Uh, approaching a problem that way, but there are you know things like text layout and and you know kind of general text flow around images and that sort of thing. You know the the uh, JavaFX isn't the best at, um, mm-hmm. and you know a web a web view would really work. So I assume then that they've made some sort of extensions to the the JavaScript side of things to allow it to, I mean, is it like a message passing type system between it and Java or can you actually call methods between the two or?
2: Yeah. Well, what, what you do is you just create a little object. Um, I think it's just, it's just like a bridge object, I guess is what it, they call it. And, uh, in my case, I think I just used, uh, you know, it might've been like def type or def protocol. I have to look at the code again cause it's been a while, but it's just a little object and then you can just create whatever methods you want on it. And it will actually be exposed in, uh, in the JavaScript side. Oh, wow. Um, and of course it, it, it could be dangerous if you're, uh, if you're loading arbitrary, you know, content from the outer web. So you do have to be careful about that, but, um but it's it's not that hard actually. The only uh, problem I ran into, unfortunately, is uh, that little bridge object. Um, you know, after after some update, I forget which update it was. It was being garbage collected oh, because I wasn't actually holding on to any reference to it because I didn't need to. And uh, for for a long time, it it was fine, but there was some update that happened, and the object was actually just, like, disappearing. It took me so long to figure this out. Like, the effect was basically that the communication between the WebView and the JVM side would just suddenly stop, so, like, I couldn't hit save. I couldn't do all those things that rely on it, and, and it was impossible to debug because there was no stack trace or anything, so I literally just had to sit there. On my couch one day and think like, why would this work for 30 seconds or whatever and then stop working? And finally, I thought, well, maybe it's being garbage collected. So I yeah. held on to a reference, and that fixed it finally. <laughs> so um, that's that. All is just meant to say that uh, you know, there the one downside perhaps to Java FX is you there will be some likelihood that you'll run into some weird issues. That you have to rely on Oracle to fix, or you know it might be hard to debug, um, and that was certainly the case with me, but overall, I really love the uh, the fact that I can do both because I, I could basically keep all of that backend code I wrote for the original Nightcode. code I didn't have to change all that to use whatever node API electron makes you use, so that right. was a nice thing oh excellent. Um, so, um,
1: it looks like Nightcode also supports uh, Parnifer as well. I may, maybe to, I don't know about uh, ParaEdit either. But uh, how do those integrate into this? In fact, I, I don't really know a whole lot mu- that much about uh, Parnifer. So, um, first of all, can you tell us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. Well, the um, the original version of Nightcode had a very basic version of ParaEdit that. You know, it only supported like the three or four main commands. And even then, I was not a big fan because I, w- I wanted this to be for beginners. And, uh, you know, learning keyboard commands is never very beginner friendly. And I even, in the old version, I could, I had this little button that would bring up a little pane that gave you um, a little list of the commands. Which, you know, wasn't a whole lot of help, but um, but the alternative was also bad. Like, I mean, I've taught programming to so many people and, you know, the, with, with a lisp, having to manage the parentheses yourself uh, can get very painful, especially when you start cutting and pasting things everywhere. Yes. Um, and, uh, and so it's like pick your poison, unmatched delimiter errors or uh, scratching your head trying to figure out why... ParEdit won't let you delete this, or, you know, what, what's the command to do such and such. And uh, so, you know, that that was a situation for a long time. And uh, ParInfer came out. Uh, it's an editing mode that Sean LeBron created. And it, it essentially promises a third way here, which is that it gives you... Know, not all of the power part of it but a lot of the functionality of it, it it keeps all your parens balanced but it does so without requiring any keyboard shortcuts so everything is just inferred based on indentation which makes sense anyway because uh you know we we want to keep our our indentation correct no matter what so um in a sense it, it sort of turned lisp into an indentation based language. Uh, which essentially means it's just as easy to edit as Python, and uh, and so of course I jumped on it, and uh, and and have it's actually the only editing mode in Nightcode right now. Um, that's not to say there aren't um, you know some controversy about that. I mean I've had people tell me that it's actually um, confusing and difficult. Right now I'm just not really sure if it's because they are used to other things like par edit or you know if this is something that is also just inherently difficult there are some edge cases that are that are certainly strange but uh, actually Sean Lebron uh, has been working on um, a new version of parn for i think it's he just released it like parn for 3.0 that uh, fixes a lot of the weird edge cases so i'm going to integrate it and uh into nightcode pretty soon. But yeah, he's on he's on Slack on that uh whatever that is, Clojurians. Yes. And he there's a channel on there, Parnfer. So like if anyone wants to um talk to him about it, you can go on there. And I think it's just it's the future, at least for beginners learning a lisp. Uh I don't see anything that comes close, frankly. So and I and I use it myself too, but that's probably because I'm still a beginner at heart. <laughs> <laughs>
1: so that is that comes as a library then that you you pull into Nightcode, or is it a, is it more of just a, a methodology that you implement a version of it yourself, or, or how does that work?
2: It's a library. Uh, the primary one is written in JavaScript, which is fine since you know Nightcode's editor is now a web view, so. Mm-hmm. It's literally just a thing that I pipe uh, the, the file through as you're typing. And, um, and it's quite fast, although Nightcode's editor is not very fast, but that's for other reasons. That's uh, you know related to um, the fact that I'm using Tools Reader to parse it. But Parn for itself, yeah, it's just a library. Uh, there's also actually a version um, for the JVM that Colin, Colin Fleming. Uh, is maintaining and it's just a direct port from the javascript to Kotlin i think and uh and of course he needed it for cursive right so um so there's that option as well
1: oh well, excellent so the other the other feature that um nightcode has um it sounds like I, I read the documentation on it uh in preparation for this is the InstaRepl. now the InstaRepl is something that we've I don't know if we saw a whole lot of it before Light Table was a thing, but uh, it now pops up in in various editors. Um, uh, but so Nightcode has Instant first of all, right? Mm-hmm. And yep. And uh, p- for people who haven't used that, what what's the experience like there?
2: It uh, it, it basically shows the um, result of evaluating each top level form in your file right next to it. So in the case of, uh, of night code, when you turn it on, a new column appears on the left hand side of your file and every top level form is evaluated right then and there. And the result is shown right next to it. And, uh, you know, this is mostly useful when you're uh, doing development and you know, you've got a, a bunch of different uh, forms that you're messing around with, and you want to see what happens when you change one and it affects the rest of them. Uh, InstaRepl is really nice for that because uh, all of the evaluations are rerun every time you make an edit. So you can see how the changes flow through all of the, the forms below them. Um, so it's it, it, for me it was just like another feature I really wanted that helped a beginner to visualize the code um, you know it's not uh, perfect um, because right now in nightcode it only supports um, closure core well basically just closure so if you're using any third party libraries uh, it won't be able to uh, to evaluate those. Um, when we get into nightlight later, that actually is fixed in nightlight because of the design. But uh, but in nightcode in particular, it does have that limitation. But even then, it can be quite useful in like uh, a workshop environment. You know, a lot of closure bridge classes used uh, Lighttable back in the day, and I think I think that may have been one of the reasons why. Like they found the InstaRepl to be a really nice way to visualize the code.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I think I think it's really easy. A uh, real n- nice for that to kind of see um uh, and like you said, being able to change a form higher up in the file and see all the changes propagate through the rest of the code is is uh, a nice feature to have, really nice. Yeah. Um so uh, on that subject, Nightlight was actually the next thing I had uh, on the list here to talk about. So um uh, first of all, what is Nightlight?
2: It's yet another editor. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and actually I, at closure D, um, I gave a talk this year in February and, uh, I relayed the story about what happened, but basically, uh, um, I was living in Charleston, South Carolina at the time and was working on night code, you know, like I do every year. And there were certain things that I never could implement. One of them was what I just mentioned, the InstaRepl, didn't work with third-party libraries because I'm actually running the evaluation inside of Nightcode. Mm. So of course, Nightcode doesn't know anything about your libraries, unless you know there's one inside of Nightcode just uh, you know um, by coincidence. Um, so that that it was kind of a toy in But the other thing, much bigger, is uh, I could never implement code completion in Nightcode and uh the reason why it was actually the exact same reason because uh doesn't know anything about your dependencies you know it it doesn't uh it doesn't do what cursive or cider uh do you know cursive has this incredible static analysis thing to go through all your third-party libraries and get all the information it needs and um, Cider, of course, uses NREPL, so it actually runs the project and communicates over that connection to get completions. Both of those are great ideas, but, you know, I'm one guy, and I'm not going to be able to reimplement either of those in uh, in Nightcode. It's just too much work. So I just kind of resigned myself in defeat about it. But I, uh, that's actually where the idea of Nightlight came out because I started thinking, like, Why is that so hard to implement? And I I realized in both those cases, it's because the editor is running in a separate process than your project. So of course, in order to get information about your project, what does it have to do? It either has to talk to the running version of your project or like many Java and C-sharp IDEs, it has to do a lot of static analysis. And uh, so I thought to myself, well, what if, the editor just ran in the same process. And it's not a totally new idea. I think Racket, uh, Dr. Racket, when you run code in it, um, my understanding is that it actually evaluates the Racket on the exact same Racket runtime that the editor is running in. Um, and, and it's a very lispy thing, you know, like uh, we're, we don't really have all the information until runtime and we want to be able to modify uh, our project at runtime very easily. So, you know, having that close connection is pretty natural. So anyway, I I, I thought about how I might implement it. And, you know, I'm not going to make it so there's some Java effects window that suddenly appears every time right. you run your project. Um, a more natural idea would be to, to make a completely browser-based editor and just uh, spin up a little web server inside of your project that serves it up. So, um, you know, I was already part of the way there because I already had, you know, a web-based text editor, Prensoup. So I just created a, the rest of the UI, like the file tree and whatnot, using Reagent. And uh, I, I had myself basically a, a completely browser-based editor. And, uh, and, it, and, and the key here is it's packaged as a library. So it's not an application. You don't install it anywhere anywhere. You add it to your dev dependencies and you just run. You know, you put it make it run on whatever port you want, and nightlight will appear. And uh and I also have plugins now. I have one for line again, and then I have a, a boot task as well. Um so it's even easier like you know, like as far as using it. Uh but the real reason for doing this is that um all those things that were so hard to implement with a traditional IDE like nightcode. Became trivial. Like code completion took me like a couple hours because all I have to do, like Nightlight's in the same process. All I have to do is go to the namespace that you're editing, and just ask for all the available symbols. And uh, and, same, and with the Instarepl, well, it works with everything now, not just uh, Closure Core. It works with all your third-party libraries because the Instarepl is actually running in your project's process now. Uh, so it it solves so many problems for me and uh and there there are a bunch more things that i'll be adding in the future, but um, that that 's how I knew that that the design was onto something was was all of a sudden these things that were hard to implement before became just an afterthought they became so easy to implement afterwards so um, so yeah it's been it's been good so far excellent so
1: it sounds like that so it's sp- uh, the uh, nightlight will spin up a uh, uh, web server of sorts uh and then you connect to it with a browser but it sounds like most of the processing then still happens on the java side that it's not that thick of a of a web um client on uh, uh, in, in the browser itself is mostly just displaying the information and then the jvm side is doing all the heavy lifting there
2: yep sure yeah like i i uh still certainly have uh you know, server-side code in this case. I mean, it's it's just a traditional web app if you think about it. Um, you know, I'm using Ring, and I'm uh, a front end. I'm just you know displaying the, all the content, and uh, and everything else like getting those completions or whatever just requires uh, talking to the server. You know, and then having the completion sent back down. Um, so it's a uh, it's a pretty much uh, normal web app, except it happens to be running on local host normally. Mm-hmm. So you're just running it locally on your machine. Excellent. Um,
1: so I guess the, the question I have then is, is how does that work out better in the sense that uh, if you had a socket REPL or NREPL or something, um, which, you know, the, like you said, the way CIDR or, well, cursive, does static analysis but i guess for cider mm-hmm. too you have that communication right you have a front end in, in one uh place that's kind of communicating over a network to the the back end place it sounds like that's that's kind of the same model um but it yeah. also sounds like you've you can leverage the jvm a bit more in this case um
2: possibly but really um in my opinion uh there is a certain non-trivial amount of complexity to managing an NREPL connection um, between your editor and the running project. And, uh, and and so having everything inside of the process directly um, felt like a, a pretty dramatic simplification. Now, right now, I haven't, you know, we haven't seen dividends yet. Like Nightlight is a, a pretty simplistic editor and um, it, it's not going to you know, give Cider a run for its money anytime soon. But um, it's a pretty solid foundation to start building pretty crazy features. One of them in particular I want to do um, is use Clojure spec to um, give you that magical red underline that we all get <laughs> with typical IDEs. Yes. Um, but but really don't normally have in the Closure world well, with Nightlight, it's in the same process. I have all of the specs, or, or you know, potentially have all access to all of the specs you've defined, and I can use a technique like, uh, uh, was Aaron roner who, who, who wrote uh, that uh, Spectre library, the thing that uses spec to statically analyze? Oh yes,
1: coding. yeah, I remember, uh, we'll put a link in the in the blog post with this, uh, this uh, uh, podcast, but I'm, I'm, I'm not sure who wrote it. I have heard of the library though.
2: Yeah. It, uh, it and I haven't uh, started work on this, but I was thinking of maybe using that technique to, to just add more richness to the editor, you know, like, uh, like tell people, you know, this is, this is not uh, the type that you're trying to pass into here. And of course it can be, it, it can be a lot more, sophisticated than a typical um, Java or C-sharp IDE because spec can uh, describe so much more than just basic type information. So I, I don't know, all of this stuff seems like it'll be a lot simpler now with Nightlight's design. That's not to say that none of this stuff is possible with uh, CIDR or cursive's design. Um, but given that you know Nightlight is a ridiculously tiny project, with so few moving parts. Like it's it's uh, it's really nice uh, and easy to add features to it because mm-hmm. there's just no um, separation between the editor and your project at all. Not even an NREPL connection. There's no NREPL middleware you need to add right. somewhere, you know, so. Well, that's excellent. Yeah, and it's, I think
1: there's um, even a case there for uh, having the ability to poke around in a system while it's running. I mean, I've, I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to do that where um, I just need the state of some information on this uh, process. And uh, yeah, you could open a, a, a socket REPL or an NREPL or something and then jack into that. Um, but hey, if you have the ability to have kind of a full-fledged IDE as well, um, that's something that, that's pretty cool as well. Um, yep. That's great. And,
2: and there, there are also other, you know, unexpected benefits like for example you you could run nightlight on a server and then uh, access it you know over the internet so you can you can SSH into your server run nightlight there and then um, you know if you know the the IP and port number just go to in your web browser now you're editing your project um, you know that way uh, completely remotely and I even added a feature recently where you can uh you can restrict it to only accept connections on localhost that way you can use ssh tunneling to securely access it that way it's not just like you're exposing the whole right. thing to the to the internet but that kind of thing that's just a like an unexpected benefit that i got uh from the design and and of course uh that i guess could lead into the the uh you know the other project i'm working on is uh is basically an extension of this. It's, uh, it's a hosted version of Nightlight uh, called nightcoders.net. And uh, it, uh, it, it basically is Nightlight running on my server with my build tools already installed on the server. So um, so you can develop projects uh, with nothing but a bra- Like you could develop projects with a Chromebook using it. There's mm. There's nothing that needs to run locally and, uh, and that, that wasn't even particularly difficult to develop because Nightlight already existed. All I really had to do was uh, account, obviously, for the differences. You know, when you're, when you're running it hosted, I need to have separate user accounts and all that stuff. But um, the majority of it was, was already there. Um, I implemented it, actually, while I was on vacation in Mexico in, in December. <laughs> Because, I mean, I won't get into details, but let's just say when you go to Mexico for the first time and you eat street food, let's just say uh, it can uh, it can lead to a situation where you are bedridden for a little while, <laughs> and that's what happened to me. <laughs> uh, my my poor American stomach was not able to deal with it, so um, so for like two weeks I was just sitting there in my Airbnb with nothing to do. So I cranked out nightcoders.net. And it's been up ever since. Um, it, and that's what it is. It's just a hosted version of Nightlight.
1: Oh, excellent. So so when a user connects, you then spin up a new uh, JVM process in the backend, or you you've kind of actually sharded the JVM process some way?
2: Well, the um, uh, the actual process running nightlight is is um, it, this is where it gets a little bit different. Um, there's only one. Okay. And it's, it's, uh, it's in integrated into the web server. Um, and I should mention nightcoders.net only supports closure script development. Okay. Um, so, um, you know, you're not going to develop closure projects. And the reason why is I, I can't just run arbitrary closure code.
1: Yeah. I was PC kind of for. wondering about that. <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, that would be, that would be difficult. Here's the interesting thing though. Um, uh, you can, you can, it's not just a toy, like you can add any ClojureScript dependency you want and it will build it, nice. you know? So I'm running the, the real ClojureScript compiler on my server and that, and that part is where it does create a separate process for each user um, when they, when they want to build their project. Um, and it's literally just a boot process that I, that I launch and uh, point it to a particular directory on my server and it will compile it and it will happily pull any dependencies and yes you can write closure macros uh that work in closure script that part does work so in a way you can write closure um and that was a security issue at first because you know if you write a closure macro you can do anything you want you can launch missiles um, so I found a way to actually wrap it in the JVM sandboxing functionality nice. using Clojail. So, um, so hopefully it's secure, but anyway, for the most part, it's just closure script development. And, and that's exactly what I do. I actually launch a boot process, which if it sounds like it's very memory intensive, it is, um, my server initially only, I think it had 32 gigs of Ram. And when it hit Hacker News, the entire server was swamped um, and people were getting out of memory errors. So um, uh, I moved my server to another one. Now it's got, I think, 256 gigs of RAM. And uh, so it'll be good for a while at least.
1: Oh, excellent. Uh, so so yeah, we should definitely check out that uh, everyone, and uh, it sounds like too that that'd even be a even better way to get people interested in closure. Is you know if if you can fire up a browser, you can get moving yeah. on it. You don't have to download anything.
2: So. Exactly. There was already a, a workshop I think in maybe in Netherlands that used Nightcoders .net, and I heard some good things from it. So um, so yeah, I think it could be pretty good. Excellent. That. Well, we're a ways through our,
1: our conversation here, and I want to make sure we get to another um, uh, set of libraries and tools you've been working on. So let's we'll make a little pivot here um, and uh, talk a little bit about Play, CLJ, and CLJS. They're, they're two separate libraries. Um, and uh, there's a talk you did back in uh, 2014 that kind of went over some of these, but uh, um, let's, let's start there. What, what, what's the idea behind these two libraries?
2: Well, uh, PlayCLJ was my first one, and uh, it actually basically came out of the same situation that NightCode did. Remember, like, I I made NightCode because I was poor in Pittsburgh, and, like, (laughs) I was uh, uh, giving programming lessons. Um, Well, it turns out a lot of the kids wanted to learn how to make games. Surprise, surprise. And uh, um, at the time, I was a crypto nerd, you know. I didn't know anything about making games. Um, but I was, you know, I wanted to get away from that past world anyway. So, um, so I, I started just winging it, you know, like I, I started with LibGDX, a uh, Java game framework, and I just taught, you know, how to make games with Java, which was nice, but, uh, you know, obviously tons of boilerplate and, and, and stuff that, you know, I would prefer not having to teach. So, uh, it was pretty natural to try to make a, Closure wrapper for it, and that's what I did. Um, it's pretty extensive; like it covers a, a fairly large part of LibGDX. Um, and it, and and then I started going further and further into this uh, little local optimum. Like I uh, I built a editor called Nightmod, which basically is like Nightcode and PlayCLJ combined together. It's like uh, It's like a game IDE. Hmm, And my my idea was basically uh, completely eliminate the complexity of, like, project structure and running a separate process. Instead, I'm just going to have this IDE with a text editor and a a little, you know, pane that shows the game. And everything runs in that one process. It's ultra simple. And, um, you know, you, you never have to worry about, like, starting and stopping the game or something like that, you know, it's so interactive. And that's actually what I delivered the talk with, um, at the conge. I used night mod. Uh, so th- those, t- two things were great for a while. Um, what happened, you know, the reason I moved to play CLJS, well, there are a couple of reasons. Number one is that, uh, honestly, play CLJ reflects a lot of the mistakes that, you know an early closure programmer would make like prioritizing easy over simple Um, I I tried so hard to make it easy early on that it's so restrictive you know like it's very easy to make a simple game but when you want to start getting a more complex game you start hitting barriers because I have like a very opinionated state management system that just doesn't scale very well to a larger game, and so this this desire to make it easy ended up making it very not simple at all, and uh, and so the, I I did have some regrets about that. Also, it's full of macros because an early closure programmer is like, oh my god, macros are amazing. Yes, and uh, and you you don't really realize the downside at the time, so th- those were some technical problems, and and it's not like I can fix those after the fact without. Totally rewriting it. Um, another thing is, frankly, like if you're if you're just trying to make indie games and and you're just uh, an aspiring game developer, you should start with the browser, in my opinion. Um, you know, I lit GDX, Unity, these things are great, but if you just want to get as much feedback as possible early on, you should target the browser, like like game jams, like Ludum Dare almost everyone makes web games because no one wants to download a jar file or an exe file to run your game. They want to click a link. And so, uh, and so I was like, okay, um, two very good reasons there to make a new library. So I, uh, I made PlayCLJS. That's what I'm focused on now. It's a Script game library. It's much smaller and simpler than PlayCLJ. There's no restrictiveness about how you manage state. You can choose to do it however you wish. Um, and I don't know, I think it just reflects uh, my growth as a closure programmer in a way. So um, I'd, I'd say I'm, I'm more focused on that now. And uh, in, in fact, nightcoders.net has a template for it built in. That's like my own little version of open source vendor lock-in there. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so yeah, that, that's that's the summary, I guess. Excellent. So um,
1: first of all, though, is this a system that's, uh, I'm going to use the words uh, retain mode versus immediate mode, but I think what we can describe to people is like, is it a type of library where you say draw a triangle, draw a rectangle, or is it more of a declarative system where you say here is a, a rectangle and I may come back later and move it and the engine itself? Worries about drawing and redrawing and that sort of thing. So it's like a DOM or more like a canvas.
2: It's um, it's much more like a canvas. I mean, it's uh, it's definitely more. Uh, it, there's not really anything d- declarative per se, um, um, especially in PlayCLJ. You know, it's it's just using LibGDX and you make direct uh, draw calls in your like render method, which runs, you know, hopefully sixty times a second. Um, so there's that, um, play CLJS also works that way. It uses canvas. Uh, but the, um, the scene itself is described using data by it's using like hiccup style syntax. So people who use reagent will find it a bit more familiar, but it's not declarative in the way that reagent is, you know, like you're not going to declare your scene and then just like modify data to, uh, To move things around i've experimented with that and uh i think that you know there are some attempts at that like i think even uh um some people have tried to mix react with 3js to get that kind of declarative uh feel and there might be something to that but right now i just think it's too slow honestly uh for for anything non-trivial uh so for now at least i'm sticking with uh you know the old school, I guess. Excellent. So, so you kind of build your scene and and
1: store it in. I guess PlayCLJS uh, maintains the the entity state, but then you're writing the render function that says, okay, we'll render the floor, and now we'll render um, the characters on top of the floor if it's a 2D game or something like that.
2: Yep, yeah. absolutely. And um, and and by the way, that's uh, that is one thing. I PlayCLJS only supports 2D at the moment. I may may get into some WebGL stuff eventually, but uh, certainly if you're focused on 3D, then uh, Unity is where it's at. Like if you want to do Clojure and 3D, then the Arcadia project is definitely where it's at um, because 3D is is very complicated and uh, Unity has a lot of higher level things to help you along. Uh, PlayCLJ has like really basic 3D. But it's, it's literally like, you know, draw a cube. <laughs> right, right. Kind of thing. And JS doesn't have any 3D. Um, but it, it, I mean, it may be something I get into eventually. Of course, I'm more of a 2D guy. So um, it really depends on what I get into. Excellent. Well, a few um, uh, talks, a few of these cognitive casts ago,
1: we did have one of the developers from. Uh, uh, Arcadia on here, and we, we talked a little bit about the Entity Component system, but uh, does first of all, does PlayCLJS use uh,
2: that sort of system, or is it, does it have its own system? Um, there, there really isn't any state management system at all in PlayCLJS, so if you want to use an Entity Component system, um, you'll have to add that yourself. Um, there, I'm sure there are some libraries that could help you along. Um, But actually, I mean that reflects exactly what I was hoping for. You know, I was trying to force you to do less and and give you more options. Whereas PlayCLJ was like, "Here's your state management system; you better like it." Right. (laughs) And uh, and you know, I I I, there was there is a certain uh, beauty to how you know in PlayCLJ it was literally just a vector of entities, and you just kind of shoved it into your render. Function and and every and it was all displayed, but it was very inflexible. So my decision was just don't even include anything in, and if people want to use an ECS, then they certainly can. Right, but but you know, even getting started, I I, I remember
1: back to my. Um preteen years building like a space wars game and and basic gw basic back in that day and uh you know yeah it was the same sort of thing it's like i have an array for my the bullets on the screen and i have two ships and they are on these positions and that's all the state i need yeah yeah (laughs) yeah there's no reason to get too much more complicated for for just a a beginning uh sort of thing exactly yeah excellent um Let's see here. So uh, yeah, I had on the list here to ask how in your talk, how you integrated PlayCLJ CLJ um, with the editor. And uh, we discussed that at night mod. Um, and so I guess, is there something like that then for uh, play CLJS? Is there um, an IDE I can use that kind of have the two side by side?
2: Um, not right now, but that is definitely something I'm trying to think about. Um, I mean, like I said, you can you actually, in a way, nightcoders.net works that way. Uh, because if you create a playcljs project on there, um, there's a little tab you'll see called ClosureScript REPL. And when you click on it um, and, you, and, you, and you hit the start button, what will happen is in the top portion, you'll get a REPL. And in the bottom portion, I'm actually displaying an iframe that 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 includes your game in it Mm, and so you can uh you can literally develop the game and go to that tab and see it and interact with it using a repl um and that's one thing i didn't mention about nightlight as well is uh is it it has this support for creating a closure script repl and and really closure script repls i think have traditionally been quite difficult to set up um, but with nightlight and nightcoders.net, it's just, it's almost automatic, you know, like it's all just, uh, already included. And, uh, um, and so that's probably the closest thing right now that I've built to night Um, I definitely have ideas in the future about what I'd like to build. And my head is definitely still in this area of, uh, developer tools for beginners and, uh, and games. Um, the one thing I've been thinking about lately that is not fully formed in my mind, but you know, I was thinking the other day about, um, how do I actually teach programming? Um, I I taught Java at a code school for four semesters and, uh, my opinion is the best way to teach any language early on is not, in a text file or an IDE or an editor of any kind, it's a REPL. Hmm. I think that's the absolute best way to start. And, uh, of course, Java does not have a REPL, um, so I did the next best thing. I spent the first week of each class, each semester, uh, with the Groovy console. And my students never opened a text file. They never opened IntelliJ yet. All we did was just learn the the basic semantics of the language. Groovy is close enough to Java that it was fine. And uh, we we actually learned about data structures before we ever learned what the main method was, which is a little weird, but um, it just reflects the fact that I think that's much more fundamental to programming. And so I've been thinking about that, like maybe what I really need to build is a tool that's more REPL centric and doesn't even have a text editor. It literally, you build whatever it is, a game, anything you want, entirely line by line, you know, in, in a more REPL like interface. And so that's where my head is at right now. That's what I want to build. Um, I don't really know the details yet, but I think there's something to that. Like, like the REPL is the best learning tool possible early on. It's so interactive and, uh, and you can, your brain only has to process one line at a time, you know, and you see the intermediate results each time. So I just think it's significantly better for a beginner.
1: Absolutely. You know, and it's, um, I mean, that's, that's the way I, I program even, uh, professionally. There's a, uh, the client I currently work with at the bottom of one of the test files, I have a comment section where I just have all sorts of snippets of code, uh, because whenever I want to try something out, I keep thinking, okay, I can sit here and think about this forever, or I can sit down and just try it and see if it improves this code at all, you know? <laughs> and Because, yeah, you're right. At some point, it's too much. Even, it, for, even for people who code all day, at some point, it, it gets to the place where you can't keep it all in your head anymore, and kind of dealing with it in smaller chunks is
2: is a big help. It, it took me so long to actually uh get into a more REPL-based mindset because I came from C and Java and uh I didn't really use it that the REPL very much until recently. And it's just because I, I had to unlearn all of those habits. Um but you know I, I really think it's uh it's something that you know everyone should work on. Maybe that's my end advice to <laughs> uh work on REPL uh usage. Like it's hilarious the closure.zip source. I think it still has Rich's rebel scratchpad commented yes. out. Yes. <laughs> I love that. Like that's like my favorite thing I've seen in uh in any of the the source code in closure. I mean, that just goes to show I mean that's the uh um kind of mentality that's helpful when you're using this language, I think.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. Um uh, and, and yeah, it's it's the same sort of thing. We test in the REPL, and then somehow we have to transfer it over to to unit tests or something like that. I mean, there's there's uh, we need to do more in the REPL. That's for sure. So uh, yeah, as you as you alluded to, our our final question we have for every guest is: um, Do you have some advice for us? So you're free to use that as your advice, or <laughs> you could say something yeah. else as well. Reframe it, whatever you'd like.
2: Yeah, I mean, I, don't, I certainly don't have anything lofty to share. Um, my, uh, um, but it, since, uh, since we're on this subject, um, my, my advice to people is if you haven't checked out Boot yet, you really should. It took me a long time to even get to the point where I like, started playing with it. But uh, at this point, every single project that I actively maintain has been converted to Boot. And I, I think you guys even had the folks behind Boot on. Contact. Yes, yes, we did a while back, yeah. And, uh, I mean, it's just amazing. Nothing against line again, of course. We're spoiled for choices here as far as build tools. Um, but in a way, Boot, in my mind, reflects uh, the closure mentality of uh, just having a, um, a bundle of, of independent tools rather than a, a monolithic thing, like you just have a bunch of little tools that you can use however you wish and definitely changed the way I develop closure. So, you know, um, if you ever find yourself writing a make file uh, to control your closure projects, you should think, well, maybe I could just use boot to do this. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, excellent. And I think we'll wrap it up there for
1: today. Uh, thanks so much for being with us uh, uh, on the CogniCast today. This, is, this time has flown by um, and uh, I had a great time. So thank, thank, you. You. thank you. Absolutely. And thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been the CogniCast.
0: You have been listening to the CogniCast. The CogniCast is brought to you by Cognitech. We are a team of thoughtful, experienced technologists. Our passion is helping organizations from the smallest startups to the Fortune 50 deploy technology effectively and humanely. We are here to help you build better futures. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com and on Twitter at at Cognitech. You can subscribe to the Cognicast, listen to past episodes, and view cover art, show notes, and episode transcripts at our home on the web, cognitech.com slash cognicast. You can contact the show by tweeting at cognicast or emailing us at podcast at Our guest this week was Zach Oaks. You can find everything you've ever wanted to know about Zach at SEKAO.net. Our host today was Timothy Baldridge, who was at Tim Baldrige on Twitter. That's at T-I-M-B-A-L-D-R-I-D-G-E. Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. Audio production is by Russell Olson, Joe Smith, and Jarrett Binford. The Cognicast is produced by Kim Foster. Our theme music is Thumbs Up for Rock and Roll by Kill the Noise with Feed Me. I'm Russell Olson. Thanks for listening.